Welcome to the Absite Smackdown Podcast. We'll talk clinical scenarios, interesting Absite facts, and interesting general surgery knowledge. Now, let's get to it. Hi, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, we're going to talk about trauma. Trauma deaths occur in three peaks post-injury. The first is the 0 to 30 minute time frame. That's the first peak, and it's typically owing to catastrophic injuries. Patients are typically not salvageable. The next peak occurs at 30 minutes to 4 hours. 50% of uh, deaths here are due to traumatic brain injury, and 50% are due to bleeding. Approximately 30% of deaths in this group uh, occur during what's called the golden hour, the hour from the time of initial injury until an hour's passed. This is often referred to as the time period where patients are salvageable or where it's most important to do everything we can to be able to salvage patients. So again, the golden hour is that time from injury until an hour has passed, uh, during which if we do everything we and do everything correctly, we have a chance at salvaging patients. After that amount of time, things become a lot less likely. So it's important to get patients in and uh, worked on in that golden hour. Days to weeks later is the third peak of trauma deaths, and that's typically due to long-term issues such as sepsis and multi-organ failure. There are other miscellaneous facts that are important for the abscite as well, like the classic GCS less than 8 and intubate. Remember that the number one cause of preventable blunt trauma death is missed intra-abdominal injury, so that's something we're always on the lookout for. Next, let's talk about the types of shock. <clears throat> there are several uh, generic categories that you can divide shock into. Uh, one is hypovolemic shock. And here the mechanism is decreased preload. The heart rate is typically elevated. Cardiac output is down. Patient may have pallor and the feet may be cold. And the solution here is to give volume. The other generic categories of shock include cardiogenic shock, septic shock, and neurogenic shock. Some types of shock, like septic shock and neurogenic shock, get put together in older classifications and are called distributive shock. They're called distributive shock together because blood volume and flow is misplaced or somehow altered, so distribution is a problem. Let's talk a little bit more about cardiogenic shock. The mechanism here is decre decreased cardiac contractility and the heart rate's elevated, typically. Cardiac output is decreased, and this is the only type of the types of shock that have jugular venous distension. So if they talk about a patient and they describe a cervical collar in place, or they've removed a cervical collar and they see JVD, uh, just keep an eye on or look at uh, cardiogenic shock or just start to think about that. Remember, patients who come in with a collar, well, you often can't see the JVD, whether that be from uh, tension pneumothorax, cardiogenic shock, both. The presser or pressors of choice here for cardiogenic shock uh, are dibutamine and sometimes levofed. For septic shock, the mechanism is decreased afterload. Heart rate is often elevated. Cardiac output is elevated. The patient may be febrile and they may have warm extremities. The best options here include source control and volume resuscitation. Uh, levofed is the presser of choice, typically plus or minus vasopressin. Remember, by the way, levofed is uh, norepinephrine or noradrenaline.
Neurogenic shock includes a mechanism of decreased afterload. Heart rate is elevated, cardiac output is elevated, and this can be seen in spine fracture with paraplegia or without paraplegia. Uh, and volume uh, and phenylephrine uh, are typically the treatments here. Just as an FYI, the quote zones unquote for abdominal trauma, just remember those are for blunt trauma situations. For penetrating trauma, abdominal zones really aren't used for decision making. So they are ideas or um, ways to divide up the retroperitoneum when it comes to a blunt trauma situations and decision making from blunt trauma situations. For example, there's no zone 3 injury from a gunshot wound or zone 2 injury with hematoma near kidney from gunshot wound. The classes of hemorrhage, uh, there are four. Uh, class 1, 2, 3, and 4. Class 1 hemorrhage is when blood loss is less than 750 milliliters. Heart rate's typically normal. Blood pressure is normal. Pulse pressure is normal. Mental status is normal. And resuscitation here includes crystalloid volume. People tend to think of class 1 shock as uh, donating a unit of blood. And that's what you see in a patient once they've donated a unit of blood. Class 2 shock is blood loss 750 milliliters to 1.5 liters. That's 15 to 30% of total blood volume. Heart rate is typically over 100. Blood pressure is decreased. Uh, I'm sorry, pulse pressure is decreased. Pulse pressure is decreased. Blood pressure is typically normal here, and that's important. It comes up a little later. Mental status, patient may be anxious. And resuscitation, again, includes crystalloid volume. Now, class 3 is the first time we see a blood pressure decrease, and this occurs when a patient has lost 1.5 to 2 liters, 30 to 40 percent of blood volume. So again, blood pressure decreases are not seen until class 3 shock. It's a late finding. So a normotensive patient, if you find yourself saying this patient doesn't have substantial blood loss because they're normotensive, think again about offering that as evidence because uh, that class 3 shock where blood pressure decreases, uh, owing to blood loss, well, it's been substantial blood loss, 1.5 to 2 liters by then. The heart rate is typically over 120. Uh, pulse pressure is decreased. Blood pressure is decreased. Mental status is confused. And resuscitation includes crystalloid and blood. Class 4 shock is blood loss in excess of 2 liters. Heart rate's over 140. Blood pressure is decreased. Uh, pulse pressure is decreased. Mental status is lethargic, and resuscitation is crystalloid and typically blood here. Just like for class 3 shock, resuscitation is typically crystalloid and blood. So one more time, blood pressure is okay until class 3 shock, a.k.a. greater than 30% of blood volume is lost. Speaking of crystalloid resuscitation, remember some special considerations for pediatric patients. For example, the initial fluid bolus in infants for that crystalloid resuscitation is 20 milliliters per kilogram. Next up, let's talk about damage control surgery for trauma patients. And the goals here are to stop bleeding and control contamination. Now, of course, uh, damage control procedures are also sometimes used for emergency general surgery to decrease risk for post-op abdominal compartment syndrome or and or to improve physiology before subjecting a patient to a lengthy case there are lots of reasons to use it in acute care surgery and emergency general surgery. Uh, but again, uh, for uh, trauma and acute care surgery, 
the uh, goal is to stop bleeding and control contamination, among others. The idea here is that we delay definitive repair until the patient's deranged physiology, acidosis, hypothermia, hypocalcemia, until that's improved and until the patient is stabilized and the coagulopathy is corrected. We resuscitate with red cells to FFP to platelets in a ratio of 1 to 1 to 1 as best as possible, and we typically leave the abdomen open with a temporary negative pressure dressing. Permissive hypotension is an option, uh, except if the patient may have something like a traumatic brain injury, in which case we keep the blood pressure over 90. Um, the idea here is that permissive hypotension uh, is an option at times for uh, patients who have uh, this uh, issue. There are some other important one-off facts that come up for a trauma section on uh, the ab site. And those include uh, facts about cardiac tamponade on echo. In these cases, we may see a collapsed left or right atrium, and on inspiration, the left ventricle gets small and the right ventricle gets big. Tapped blood here does not clot, and it's a good idea to leave a drain in place if you've uh, tapped off a tamponade or if you've uh, performed a subxiphoid window. Remember, the hypotension here is due to decreased, ultimately, decreased diastolic filling. Next, let's talk about diagnostic peritoneal lavage. Indications here include a hypotensive blunt abdominal trauma patient, hypotensive with something like a systolic less than 90, for example. It's considered positive if there's obvious food or gross blood noted. And remember, we perform these via a supra-umbilical incision if there's either obvious pelvic fractures or even suspected pelvic fractures. Rapid interpretation of DPL results include what's called the, quote, newspaper test, unquote. And that's the idea that if you can read the newspaper through the fluid that returns from the abdomen, or it's fairly clear, just a little blood tinged, the DPL is negative. Strict criteria for a positive DPL includes 10 milliliters of blood, greater than 100,000 red blood cells per milliliter, bile, bacteria, or greater than 500 white blood cell counts, uh, white blood cells uh, per milliliter. Of course, that often requires a send out to get the lab tests back. A DPL does miss retroperitoneal injuries. Now, again, the patient, uh, generally speaking, needs a laparotomy if there's a positive DPL. Next, let's talk about the focused abdominal sonogram for trauma, or the FAST. This is examiner dependent. Uh, you need approximately 250 milliliters or one Coke can worth of uh, fluid, free fluid or blood in the abdomen uh, to see it on ultrasound. It does miss retroperitoneal injuries. And you need to check for fluid in multiple views. Just remember the most sensitive view is the space between the liver and the right kidney. That's so-called Morrison's pouch. Positive fast in a hypotensive patient generally means laparotomy required. Next, let's talk about the indications for uh, going to the OR to do a thoracotomy. So this is a thoracotomy in the OR in the trauma patient. Uh, those include 1.5 liters out on initial chest tube placement or greater than 200 milliliters out per hour for four hours from a chest tube. Uh, the threshold amount for uh, going to the OR for thoracotomy um, uh, given output over four hours 
That amount is different in different sources, but here we use the conservative greater than 200 milliliters per hour for four hours. If you see that out, uh, the answer is uh, OR for thoracotomy. Instability is another indication to go get the thoracotomy done in the OR. And incompletely drained hemothorax, despite two good chest tubes, that indicates uh, there's a need uh, to drain the blood out of the chest. And remember, if you don't drain the blood out of the chest within 48 hours, uh, you'll, uh, you may wind up with what's called trapped lung, where there's a fibrous peel and an infected hemothorax. Uh, remember, retained hemothorax is the most important risk factor for empyema. The Absite Smackdown Podcast. Visit the Smackdown at absitesmackdown.com. Next, let's talk about ED thoracotomy indications. And this should be used very selectively in blunt trauma patients. Uh, the indications vary in different sources. Uh, some sources include the idea of only using this if there's a loss of vital signs in the ER. For penetrating trauma, loss of vitals immediately prior to ER arrival or in the ER is a more common indication. And there are standard ED thoracotomy moves, including opening the pericardium anterior to the phrenic nerve uh, with a, a small uh, incision in the pericardium, and then a uh, surgeon inserts their digits, and we bluntly open the rest of the pericardium. That way we preserve the phrenic nerve in the area. Uh, we main stem the endotracheal tube intentionally into the right main stem bronchus, and that allows the left lung to be more easily manipulated. We feel for the OG tube position, and we do that to identify the location of the esophagus and to help determine the location of the aorta. We perform a pulmonary hilar twist, uh, and that's typically required if there's a hilar injury to the lung or a devastating lung injury. We cross-clamp the aorta low and near the diaphragm, and we do that to avoid the artery of Adamkiewicz, which is the anterior spinal artery, and that helps prevent post-procedure neurodeficits. Now remember, type O blood is a universal donor. It contains no A or B antigens on the cells, so that's often used during severe trauma situations. RH negative blood, or O negative, is typically for females who are of childbearing age or prepubescent. RH positive, or O positive blood, is acceptable for males. The catecholamine response to injury actually maximizes at about 24 to 48 hours. You also see increased ADH, increased ACTH, and so cortisol and aldosterone are up as a result of that. And there are many other hormones like T4 or thyroxine, from the thyroid gland uh, that get talked about but really aren't involved. So again, the key ones are increased antidiuretic hormone from stress and increased ACTH in that maximal catecholamine response to injury. So you get uh, cortisol and aldosterone increasing also. Um, that hormonal cascade uh, maximizes about 24 to 48 hours. Many other hormones, again, like T4, uh, those are not typically involved or thought to be involved. Uh, as much in that uh, catecholamine surge. So catecholamine maximization, 24 to 48 hours, other related hormones, antidiuretic hormone, and ACTH, not so much T4. Next, next let's talk about splenic injury. And uh, one interesting topic is what's called uh, OPSI, or OPSI. OPSI is overwhelming post-splenectomy infection. 
This gets talked about a lot after splenectomy, but in fact, the greatest incidence is late post-splenectomy, years later. It's not in the first few days. Uh, it's not in the first few weeks post-op. Overall, it's rare. Immunizations post-splenectomy are thought to protect against, uh, in part, opsy. And they do this by protecting against encapsulated organisms like H. flu and meningitis, pneumococcus. And remember, these patients need a pneumovax booster years post-op. Unstable patients with splenic injury often go to the OR for splenectomy. And in those patients, uh, we don't attempt, uh, you don't attempt splenic salvage with angioembolization uh, when you're in the OR for a hypotensive patient with a significant splenic injury. Um, the next important idea here is the higher the injury grade in blunt trauma, the more likely a patient is to fail non-op management. It doesn't necessarily mean uh, a higher grade tells you to, quote, operate on the patient. That's really not what the grades mean. Uh, they're um, used to uh, prognose the likelihood of failing non-op management. So there are other options, too, like angioembolization for patients who have a significant grade splenic injury. Uh, but again, uh, there's a risk of failure of non-op management that needs to be uh, weighed. Uh, complete healing of the spleen takes about five to six weeks. And um, there's some other uh, key facts related to trauma and elective splenectomy, which come up. Tufsin, preparatin, fibronectin, these nonspecific opsinins uh, are no longer present after uh, spl splenectomy. There's a decreased IgM production. And interestingly, about 10% of patients have an accessory spleen. If you look carefully around the tail of the pancreas, up along the greater curve of the stomach, toward the diaphragm also, you'll see uh, these uh, small uh, splenules about 10% of the time. Splenectomy helps all patients with hereditary spherocytosis, their anemia and jaundice remit, and helps about 80% of patients with ITP. In general, uh, and in fact, splenectomy is not performed with patients with TTP, low platelets, hemolytic anemia, neurochanges. Treatment for them is plasmapheresis. Again, let me take a minute here to remind you that this is review level, absite review level material. There's lots of thinking and trauma on who gets a splenectomy and who doesn't, who gets angioembolization and who doesn't, things that prognose failure uh, of angioembolization uh, versus operative management. So again, I just encourage you to remember, as all things are in these podcasts and the review book, this is review book level material. It's often very simplified, very conservative. There's a lot more decision-making around this. So we'll say that again here, just so you remember, uh, for splenectomy and when it comes to intra-abdominal trauma with splenic injury, you'll see many different things done here, uh, contingent on your center and uh, current thinking. Next up is epidural hematoma. Uh, we'll talk about certain head injuries that are key for the abscite, and one of these is clearly the epidural hematoma. Epidural uh, hematoma is lens-shaped or lenticular, and it has that appearance on head CT. It's from a lacerated middle meningeal artery. And although the lucid interval gets talked about a lot, many patients with epidural, in fact most, do not have uh, a uh, lucid interval. That's the classic, but again, most patient, many patients don't have it. Indications to go to the OR include significant neurodeficit or obvious shift mass effect greater than 5 millimeters. Next up is subdural hematoma. Indications for a procedure include mass effect greater than one centimeter or significant neurochanges. 
and this is owing to tearing of the bridging veins that cross the subdural space. Next, we'll talk about diffuse axonal injury, or DAI. Uh, on DAI, the initial head CT is typically normal, no abnormality at all, and treatment is supportive. Prognosis and neurooutcome depend highly on the location of the DAI in the brain, so even a little DAI in the wrong spot can be a big problem. It's owing to a shearing of neurons as gray and white matter shear during rotation. So a spinning type motion to the vehicle, spinning type motion to the head will separate gray and white matter. And that's because of the difference in the mass of gray versus white matter. So when rotation occurs, different velocity during rotation causes shearing. Next, let's talk about intracranial pressure monitors. This is another topic where thoughts on it are changing, like they are with all of these uh, topics in trauma. But here, I'll just share that this is the uh, typical review book thinking on who needs an ICP monitor. So patients with a GCS less than eight need an ICP monitor. A patient with suspected ICP elevation, maybe a CAT scan shows uh, collapsed ventricles or some other sign of uh, increased ICP. Uh, an inability to monitor clinical exam, like a patient with a head injury uh, who is intubated. Uh, so uh, a patient with a severe or moderate head injury who can't be monitored uh, typically needs an ICP monitor. Next, let's talk about cerebral perfusion pressure. And cerebral perfusion pressure is defined as the MAP minus the intracranial pressure. Mean arterial pressure minus the ICP is cerebral perfusion pressure. Low CPP, cerebral perfusion pressure, yields additional secondary brain trauma, so less than 60 or 70, depending on the source and the clinical situation. An easy way to calculate MAP is two-thirds of the diastolic blood pressure plus one-third of the systolic blood pressure, and that helps you remember that most blood pressure is due to diastole. On CT scan, certain findings do correlate with elevated ICP, like decreased ventricle size, loss of sulci, and uh, loss of uh, cisterns. Now, an ICP greater than 20 requires rapid treatment, and we try to keep the CPP over 60. Remember, ICP typically peaks at about 48 to 72 hours post-injury. Bradycardia is a sign of impending herniation, and Cushing's triad, um, and uh, Cushing's triad specifically includes bradycardia, hypertension, and low respiratory rate. Uh, many patients who have significant ICP do not demonstrate Cushing's triad. So treatments for elevated ICP, these include head of bed elevation, hyperventilation uh, to CO2 values in the low 30s, and that one comes up a lot because the effect is just transient. It doesn't last long, and hyperventilation to lower values than that can actually cause vasoconstriction and decreased oxygen delivery, so that's bad. And hyperventilation nowadays is often uh, not done at all, owing to the fact that the effect is so transient and you can go too far. We do try to achieve a serum sodium of 140 to 150 and a serum osmolarity of 295 to 310. We may use 3% normal saline to do that. Other treatments include uh, pentobarb or pentobarbituate or pentobarbital coma. Um, remember that requires EEG monitoring in most centers and an aggressive bowel regimen, owing to the ileus they get, 
And patients who are on that, once it's shut off, it requires several days to go away. And so patients cannot be pronounced brain dead until several half-lives. So a patient who receives penovarb coma is going to be not declared brain dead for several days uh, owing to that long half-life and making sure it's all washed out. Other treatments for ICP elevation include mannitol, craniotomy, uh, keprin slash dilantin. Uh, and that, those are useful as an adjunct, obviously, rather than primary treatment. And a dilated or blown pupil related to oculomotor nerve, cranial nerve 3 pressure uh, in the temporal lobe uh, is an indication of elevated ICP. Remember to address the hypotension, if there's any present, prior to other interventions or imaging. Next up is basal or skull fractures. Anterior fossa fracture may give raccoon eyes. You may see hematympanum and CSF via the nose. Middle fossa fracture may give cranial nerve 7 or facial nerve injury and battle sign. Temporal skull fractures may be associated with facial nerve injury at the geniculate ganglion level. It's the most common site of facial nerve injury. And the most common cause of facial nerve injury is temporal bone fracture. Skull fractures with significant depression, greater than one centimeter, contamination, uh, or continued CSF leak despite conservative therapy, those require surgical treatment. Most skull fractures do not require operative intervention. After brain injury, a tissue thromboplastin is released, and some patients actually demonstrate co coagulopathy as a result. A couple other neurosurgical or uh, neurologic issues, uh, a Jefferson fracture, and that's a C1 burst fracture. That's typically caused by an axial load. A Hangman's fracture is a named C2 fracture, and that's usually caused by extension. Now, C2 odontoid fractures can be separated into three types. There's a type 2 at the base of the DENS process, and that's unstable. It typically requires a halo or fusion. Type 3 is also unstable, and that requires a halo or fusion, typically, and it extends into the vertebra. Type 1 is a stable fracture and is above the base of the DENS process. Vertebral artery injury uh, can occur with these other um, C-spine injuries, and this is one of the types of blunt cerebrovascular injury if it occurs owing to blunt trauma. Uh, the sequelae are, um, are, sequelae are unusual from a vertebral artery injury that you've ligated or embolized. You don't typically see uh, significant sequelae. Uh, however, common carotid bleeding, in contrast, carries about a 20% stroke rate with unilateral ligation. So as opposed to a vertebral artery injury that you can ligate and not see issues, uh, a uh, common carotid injury that you ligate has substantial stroke risk, about 20%, even with unilateral ligation. Remember, all penetrating neck trauma with what are called hard signs like shock, expanding hematoma, airway loss, those need operative exploration. Next up, let's talk about the neck zones. Whether blunt or penetrating trauma, again, if there are hard signs, those need exploration. If there's blunt trauma and symptoms, a patient gets a neck CT scan as long as there are no hard signs. If it's, uh, there's a penetrating trauma and no hard signs, things are controversial. 
in general, we'll go through these by zone. Zone 1 below the cricoid. Uh, injury evaluations commonly require angiography, bronchoscopy, and esophagoscopy or barium swallow. So all three tubes in the area need to be evaluated. Zone 2, which is the cricoid to the angle of the jaw, things uh, are controversial. These are probably easiest to explore in OR, but non-operative evaluation is also performed and both operative evaluation and non-operative evaluation uh, are considered to have equivalent missed injury uh, rates and centers uh, do these differently depending on what's available. Again, non-operative evaluation requires eva evaling all three tubes for these zone 2 neck injuries. So that's uh, sometimes EGD for the esophagus or swallow, uh, bronchoscopy, uh, and angio. Zone 3 injuries are uh, in the area from the jaw to the skull base and those need angiography and laryngoscopy. Next let's talk about specific injuries like esophageal injury. Esophageal injury and hypopharyngeal injury uh, require drainage. There's an approximate 20% leak rate. If you're unsure regarding presence of esophageal injury in the neck, you leave a drain. It's pretty challenging to identify these injuries in the neck, and that's why there's such a low threshold for drainage. Uh, and uh, contained injuries can be observed. Non-contained injuries with extensive contamination or other extensive related injuries um, require a chest tube to drain the injury and create a spit fistula in the neck. Uh, therefore, uh, usually require an esophagectomy ultimately owing to intentional loss of esophageal continuity. Now, uh, let me clarify this. Uh, we're not just talking about esophageal injuries in the neck here. Uh, an esophageal injury in the chest is the one we're talking about here, where we place chest tubes and drain injury, uh, and this is if there's extensive contamination or extensive injury. So we place chest tubes to drain the injury, we create a spit fistula in the neck, and eventually these patients need esophagectomy because there is a loss of esophageal continuity. It's very difficult to um, get esophageal continuity back. Here's an important approach fact or anatomic fact. The upper two-thirds of the esophagus in the thorax, the upper two-thirds are approached through a right thoracotomy. The lower third is approached via a left thoracotomy. Now, an uh, esophageal injury in the neck with extensive contamination or injuries, uh, that uh, requires a drainage, and that will eventually heal. Next, let's talk about tracheal injuries. This one's pretty straightforward. The treatment is an endotracheal tube placed beyond the level of the injury for approximately five days. It usually allows the area to heal up. Next, let's talk about bronchial tree injuries. Here we have uh, one thing uh, called a sucking chest wound, among other injuries. And sucking chest wounds, uh, you may place a chest tube and that may show continuous air leak. A large pneumomediastinum or pneumomediastinum may be present. Oxygenation can actually worsen after a chest tube is placed, and that's one of the very few indications to actually clamp a chest tube. These are more common on the right. Patients uh, may be intubated with a main stem ET tube placed on the opposite side of the injury. 
90% of these are within one centimeter of the carina, and bronchoscopy can be diagnostic. You repair them if there's a large leak and respiratory compromise, if it's more than two weeks with a persistent air leak, if the lung will not fully inflate, or if the injury is greater than about a third of tracheal diameter. The injury needs to be large, about two-thirds the diameter of the trachea, to be clinically significant uh, with these uh, sucking chest wounds. And um, uh, what you uh, typically do is make a one-way valve with a dressing over the hole on the chest, and you tape that dressing on three sides to make a one-way valve. Next, let's talk about diaphragm injury. Now, despite newer evidence that says diaphragm injuries uh, on the uh, right and left are of similar incidence, about the same on both sides, the test answer is still typically that injuries are more common on the left side, these blunt uh, diaphragm injuries. And the thought there is because the liver blocks on the right, so there are less injuries there. Uh, diaphragm rupture from blunt trauma, the classic teaching is 8 to 1, left side versus right side, even though there's that newer evidence that we talked about. Sometimes these are diagnosed with x-ray in, in the trauma bay, where the orogastric tube goes down into the abdomen and then coils back into the chest. That's a good way to determine diaphragmatic rupture. The transabdominal approach to repair these is generally easier if it's less than one week since they happen. Patients may have tachycardia. Uh, a chest approach is taken if it's over one week and adhesions have formed in the abdomen. And these may require Gore-Tex uh, mesh for repair. Next, let's talk about aortic transection. For these patients, about half die in the field. And of the half that make it to the hospital, about half of those die in six hours if they're untreated. Patients with first and second rib fractures are at high risk for aortic transection, so rule them out for it. Wide mediastinum is the best indicator of aortic injury, but unfortunately, it's also seen in many patients who don't have aortic injury. Um, other signs, then, include uh, first and second rib fractures, apical capping, loss of the AP window, tracheal deviation toward the right, but all of those are poor tests, and uh, of those, wide mediastinum is probably the only generally useful one. And again, as mentioned, um, other patients who don't have aortic injuries have wide mediastinums, like morbidly obese patients, etc. Overall, chest x-ray is normal in about 5% of patients with aortic tears. So additional imaging, CT imaging, uh, is important. The tear occurs at the ligamentum arteriosum, which is distal to the subclavian takeoff, and a covered stent endograft is the repair for the majority of injuries, uh, distal injuries only. We typically address other life-threatening injuries first, like a patient who's unstable and has a positive DPL. We address the abdomen first, because patients who've lived to the point where you get them with an aortic transection from blunt trauma. Uh, they would die from their abdominal bleeding before their aortic injury. Traumatic brain injury with intracranial hemorrhage is a contraindication uh, to operative repair uh, because of the need for bypass and anticoagulation. Now remember, when it comes to other chest trauma, that sternal fracture patients are at high risk for cardiac contusion. Next, let's talk about flail chest. Here, we talk about two or more consecutive ribs 
broken in two or more segments. Look for an underlying pulmonary contusion. When it comes to penetrating injury to the chest, remember that the box is the space bounded by the clavicles, nipples, and xiphoid process. Inside the box injuries typically require bronch, esophagoscopy, barium swallow, and a pericardial window. And the pericardial window, if there's blood, indicates the patient needs median sternotomy. Leave a drain in place in the pericardial sac after the window and go to the OR. They often also require angio for low zone 1 neck injuries and high chest trauma. Now outside the box, remember, if there's intubation, consider chest tube placement even if there's no pneumothorax or hemothorax visible because they're so likely to have an injury there. Penetrating injuries below the nipple but anteromedial to the mid-axillary line need laparotomy or laparoscopy uh, owing to location of the injury and difficulty evaluating thoracoabdominal trauma. Uh, at times, they need the same workup as a penetrating box injury. It just depends on specific location. But again, keep in mind, penetrating injuries below the nipple, but anteromedial to the mid-axillary line, often need careful evaluation for thoracoabdominal trauma with a laparotomy or laparoscopy. Next up, laryngeal fractures. These are airway emergencies. Patients may have crepitus or other hard signs, and we secure the airway on an emergent basis, often in the ER. These patients may require a surgical airway. Next up, let's move to pelvic trauma. Patients who are unstable with pelvic fractures, who have a negative uh, DPL, uh, again, a super umbilical DPL in these patients, and no other signs of blood loss, well, they get a teapot uh, or a bed sheet with clamps, or somehow the pelvis gets stabilized and they go to angio for embolization if they are unstable owing to pelvic fractures. Unstable pelvic fractures like open book fractures are at high risk for genital urinary or abdominal injury. So if you have a patient who has that sort of open book fracture, you need to evaluate in the male their urethra. Remember that severe pelvic trauma requires endoscopic evaluation of the rectum and a retrograde cystogram. Posterior pelvic fractures are more likely to have arterial bleeding, and anterior pelvic fractures are more likely to have venous bleeding. Uh, again, uh, severe pelvic trauma uh, requires endoscopic evaluation of the rectum and a retrograde cystogram, uh, and you just need to be very careful in those areas uh, that there's uh, no ramus uh, in, uh, the, uh, in the bladder or something similar. Rectal tears associated with perineal lacerations and associated pelvic fractures may require diverting colostomy. The Absite Smackdown Podcast, bringing you the best for your Absite review. Let's talk about duodenal injuries. Uh, the duodenum and its related uh, injuries, a really important area. Most commonly injured, the most commonly injured area of the duodenum is the second portion. However, another common site is at the level of the ligament of trites where the duodenum is tethered. Most injuries can be treated with debridement and closure so long as the circumference of the bowel after repair is about 50% or more. Resection and end-to-end closure is often possible with all portions of the duodenum except the second portion, unfortunately, most commonly injured. Approximately 25% of patients with significant duodenal injuries will die owing to their associated injuries and shock. 
A post-op fistula is a major source of post-op issues. Many of us uh, leave a drain if we do any duodenal repair in that area or do a pyloric exclusion. Intra-op hematomas greater than 2 centimeters near the duodenum need to be opened for both blunt and penetrating trauma to make sure you've seen the area. Hematoma near the duodenum or paraduodenal seen on CT workup in a stable patient uh, who does not have an obvious duodenal luminal injury. Um, these can present with small bowel obstruction. You can have a, a bowel obstruction from that. Uh, the recommendation is typically do not operate or open these. Treatment is TPN or NG tube, 90% uh, or more correct in two to three weeks. So again, a big duodenal hematoma, stable patient seen on CT scan. They may get a, a partial small bowel, gastric outlet obstruction from this area, but uh, don't um, don't operate on it. Wait it out uh, and uh, in a clinical scenario on the abscite or boards, they may continue to try to question you over and over. Do you take this patient in the ER? Do you not? No. Uh, more than 90% correct in two to three weeks. So the treatment is TPN and nasogastric tube. If you're being pushed to operate on one, in general, don't. Just wait longer. During laparotomy, if you suspect an injury of the biliary tree, duodenum, or a pancreas injury, then medialize the duodenum. This gets called the Coker maneuver. But medialize the duodenum and open the lesser sac. If you see any evidence of injury, succus, bile, etc., try to inspect the entire duodenum. In general, with duodenal injuries, try to get a primary repair or an anastomosis. Remember, pyloric exclusion, which includes a gastrojejunostomy in part, uh, can allow healing, and place a feeding tube distal to the anastomosis. Place drains liberally around the injury. Again, a trauma whipple is rarely, if ever, indicated. Next up on our list is small bowel injury. These are difficult to diagnose early, especially if they're isolated in the setting of a blunt trauma patient. A CT scan may show free intra-abdominal fluid with no solid organ injury. So if you see that finding, no solid organ injury and free fluid, make sure you suspect small bowel injury. CT scan uh, may also show free intra-abdominal fluid with a solid organ injury, like an injured spleen, and that can distract from the small bowel injury diagnosis. You may also see bowel thickening or hematoma at the mesentery. Usually, these do not present with free air seen on x-ray in the trauma bay. Transversely repair lacerations if you find one uh, to help avoid stricture. Resect portions of the bowel if the injury is greater than 50% of bowel circumference or if the bowel would be narrow, less than about a third of the diameter of the initial size. If multiple lacerations are close together, resect that whole segment. And remember, open mesenteric hematomas if they're larger than 2 centimeters or if they're expanding. Next up, colon injuries. The right and transverse colon injuries are more often able to be repaired primarily. If you're unable to repair primarily owing to greater than 50% of the circumference injured or associated devascularization, resect the area in anastomosis. Diversion is not necessary typically for transverse and right colon injuries. Primary repair for all left and sigmoid colon injuries less than 50% circumference if they're not associated with devascularization. So primary repair is an option there. If you do a left colectomy or a sigmoid colectomy because greater than 50% of the circumference is injured or there's devascularization, uh, you may want to create an ileostomy 
and uh, create an ileostomy in situations where uh, there's prolonged time, greater than six hours, passed since the injury. The patient has significant associated disease, like comorbidities that require steroid dosing to put your anastomosis uh, at, le uh, at, uh, at risk. And if there's substantial transfusions given, typical, uh, typically greater than six units PRBCs. As part of damage control, you may not be able to do that. You may just resect the area, you know, leave it there, come back and complete the procedure later. But those are situations where you want to at least consider an ileostomy according to the Absite Review uh, books and uh, their uh, takes on it, including Absite Smackdown. In situations where the patient's hypotensive or in shock and uh, damage control is being performed, there's no need, again, to do the anastomosis at the initial case. Just resect and leave the ends in and later choose ostomy creation or anastomosis, etc. Hematomas near the colon are opened, whether they're blunt or penetrating a trauma situation. They can often hide colon injuries. Remember, colon injuries can also hide at the flexures and do so routinely. Rectal injuries, let's talk about those. Uh, Presacral drainage and rectal washout are no longer recommended. And the management depends on whether there's an intraperitoneal or extraperitoneal injury. If there's an intraperitoneal injury, primary repair without diversion is performed if there's no significant devascularization and they're less than 50% circumference. But if they're greater than 50% or there is devascularization or both, low anterior resection with primary, uh, with proximal diversion is the option. Now, if there's an extraperitoneal rectal injury, if it's the proximal third of the rectum, primary repair via laparotomy and proximal diversion, like an ileostomy. If it's middle third, uh, they're often inaccessible from beneath and above. And you may attempt repair, but typically uh, you create an end colostomy and just reverse it in about two months. If they're low, uh, repair primarily via a transanal approach. If there's extensive damage or you can't find the area, uh, create an end colostomy proximally. Next up, it's liver injuries. Now, we discussed the Pringle maneuver in the hepatobiliary section. Remember, it's rare to need to perform a lobectomy in trauma cases, and some guidelines recommend against releasing the hepatic ligaments and performing a lobectomy. So the standard abside answer is no lobectomy for trauma, but there are some institutions that do it and do it well in uh, select cases and have good outcomes. But again, in general, the answer is for blunt liver injuries, uh, do not... Uh, release the ligaments and perform a lobectomy or a hepatectomy. If you're unable to ligate, uh, let me change that. If you are able to ligate the uh, common hepatic artery, because the proper hepatic artery will fill retrograde via the gastroduodenal artery or GDA. So just remember, common hepatic artery is the name of the hepatic artery until the GDA is given off. So you can ligate the common hepatic, and the proper hepatic, which is the name the hepatic takes on after the GDA is given off, that proper hepatic will fill as long as the GDA is open. Atriocable shunts, those are performed for retrohepatic IVC injury. You can use a chest tube or an ET tube for the actual shunt, and IVC control is straightforward in the chest and the pericardium, and also a perirenal. So those are the easy places to get it. You can get control at those places and pass a shunt. 
Although subcapsular hematomas are to be left alone, portal triad hematomas have to be explored. So if you get a portal triad hematoma and liver injury, you need to explore that. Get control above and below the hematoma, first with Ramel tourniquets or something similar. Next, let's talk about common bile duct injury. These are often repaired over a stent uh, or a T-tube if they're less than 50%. Remember, a pediatric feeding tube trimmed is often used as a biliary stent in adults. The classic review book recommendation is cholidocojejunostomy for injuries greater than 50% circumference. Unfortunately, uh, many patients with this uncommon injury will not tolerate more technically complex repairs at the first case. So you typically have to perform damage control, reconstruct it at a later case, but then the abdominal contents are often swollen. And it's hard to, hard to get to the area, uh, but of course, at least the patient will be alive to get there. Approximately 10% of biliary anastomoses leak, so if you do perform one, drain the area liberally. Next, let's talk about other liver injuries and things that need to be done. Remember, portal vein injuries need to be repaired if at all possible. Sometimes you need to transect the pancreas to get at the underlying portion of the portal vein. And uh, ligation of the portal vein does carry significant risk for mortality. It's about a 50% mortality associated with that uh, situation. In general, uh, you do leave drains where there's a liver parenchymal injury. And uh, remember, hypotensive trauma patients who have a positive fast do need, that, uh, do need operative intervention. And if there's a blunt liver injury noted and controlled uh, post-operatively, patients still require an angioembolization. So again, positive fast, patients hypotensive, go to the OR, fix a significant liver injury, looks like it's pretty well fixed. Even those patients often require angioembolization. Uh, some centers, in fact, take all patients with significant liver injuries, even if you controlled it in the OR, uh, take them to angioembolization post-op and get them embolized. In stable patients, non-op management of liver injuries uh, from blunt trauma is the routine plan. The patient becomes unstable, resuscitate and go to the OR. The patient's a transient responder or needs more than four units of packed cells, angioembolization may be attempted. If there's a blush on CT or a pseudoaneurysm, uh, it, you may also attempt uh, angioembolization in a stable patient or a transient responder. The old rule, for how long bed rest should be in these patients is uh, grade of injury plus one day. So grade two injury would be three days. Typically, non-op management involves five days bed rest for most, for most absite review books, etc. Remember hemobilia. That's in the hemato, uh, hemo, uh, <laughs> hepatobiliary chapter. Hemobilia is important. It happens as liver injuries heal up. Uh, we talked about the triad there and the herald bleeding that can occur uh, as uh, the liver heals and later in the stay, after you're happy the patient's alive with major liver trauma, they have a little bleeding out of NG or OG tube, and uh, then it stops, and then later they cut loose. And again, that's uh, related to healing and t almost tangling of the biliary tract with the uh, uh, hepatic uh, vasculature. So take a look at hemobilia. That's it. <clears throat> That's in our, uh, our liver or our hepatobiliary chapter. Like with splenic injury, grade of the injury correlates with the risk of failure for non-op management. So it doesn't tell you whether to operate on a patient or not, but it just tells you the risk of failure if you choose another course. Next up, pancreatic injuries. 
For pancreatic contusions, don't open them if the overlying peritoneum is intact when you look at it in the OR. So if the peritoneum over the pancreas is closed, don't open it and place drains over it. Most, approximately 80% of pancreatic injuries, are treated with drain placement alone. Be sure to identify whether the pancreatic duct is injured. CT scans performed initially are often not good at identifying pancreatic injury, so just maintain suspicion with any question of a pancreatic injury on CT. Remember to look in the OR when you get there, look in that lesser sac. Uh, that's a place where injuries can hide. ERCP is often used to find duct injuries, and sometimes you can treat that with stent. Uh, you can find, uh, treat a duct injury with stent placement. Most injuries, about 80% to the pancreas, are from penetrating trauma. Distal duct injuries, you can treat with a distal pancreatectomy. Pancreatic head injuries, you can drain initially and then ERCP with a stent or a Whipple later. You can take up to approximately 80% of the gland before the patient becomes diabetic, but that's just a rule of thumb. The older take on this was that you can resect to as far proximal as the SMA without the patient becoming diabetic. Uh, so the old rule of thumb is if you resect the pancreas to the right of the SMA, the patient will become diabetic. It's not exactly uh, the case always, but it, it is a good rule of thumb. Hematomas of the pancreas must be open, whether it's from penetrating or blunt trauma. Next, let's talk about abdominal compartment syndrome. Risk factors include significant fluid resuscitation, abdominal surgery, and trauma. Bladder pressure over 25 to 30 suggests ACS. IVC compression is ultimately what causes decreased venous return and decreased cardiac output. The diaphragms are compressed and moved upward. Ventilation is difficult, and peak airway pressures are elevated. There's poor renal perfusion and decreased urine output. Treatment here is decompressive laparotomy, or if the abdomen is already open with the dressing, you remove the dressing and put a new dressing on. The Absite Smackdown podcast is based on the best-selling review book, Absite Smackdown. The only Absite review with an entire video review course included. Visit AbsiteSmackdown.com and pick it up today. Next up is vascular injuries. Let's talk about compartment syndrome. The five P's of compartment syndrome are late findings. For example, the loss of pulse doesn't occur until compartment pressure is greater than systolic blood pressure. But wait a minute. Compartment syndrome occurs at a much lower blood pressure, uh, rather at much lower pressures, because blood at the capillaries in compartments is only approximately 30 millimeters of mercury. So the bottom line is to lose your pulse, you have to have over 120 or whatever the systolic blood pressure is, 120 millimeters mercury in a compartment. But in reality, Compartment syndrome occurs at much lower pressures, 30 millimeters of mercury. So any pressure over 30 is enough to overcome capillary blood pressure and give compartment syndrome. So the bottom line is you don't lose your pulse until very late. Don't wait on the five Ps for compartment syndrome. Pain with passive motion may indicate compartment syndrome. And any uh, injury where blood flow is disrupted for more than four to six hours any orthopedic injury where you see that, you can get compartment syndrome. Typical examples are a humeral fracture, supracondylar fracture, crush injury to the lower extremities, tibial plateau fracture, typically uh, are more associated with compartment syndrome. So anytime there's comp uh, compromised blood flow for four to six hours, consider fasciotomy early, even without signs 
uh, even without waiting for compartment syndrome signs to develop later. In general, vascular repair first and then orthopedic repair uh, for patients later. So you get blood flow in or shunt uh, somehow. Uh, it's a flexible repair. Get blood flow in, do the orthopedic repair, and then definitive repair. However, there are several options here. If there's diminished pulse or signs of distal ischemia beneath the level of the fracture, reduce the fracture first, then reassess the pulse or ABIs. Hard signs of vascular injury, major signs, you go to the OR for these. Active hemorrhage, pulsatile hematoma, no pulse, expanding hematoma, ischemia distal to the injury, brewy or thrill at the level of injury. Those are all reasons. Soft signs, aka minor signs of vascular injury, typically get angio or CTA depending on the institution. Report of uh, bleeding, for example, from the site prior to arrival, kind of a soft sign. Hematoma, but non-pulsatile. Low ankle brachial index, ABI, less than 0.9. Diminished pulses on one side compared to the other. Typically, you can get an angio or CTA depending on the institution uh, for those. Next, gunshot wounds anywhere near the popliteal artery need at least a high-resolution CTA or an angiogram, even if there's a palpable pulse present at the dorsalis pedis, ipsilateral to the injury. That is the exception to a general rule where if there's a pulse present at the foot, then there's no need for arterial imaging if there's a gunshot wound to the lower extremity, even though it often gets performed anyway at a lot of institutions. The reason that a gunshot wound anywhere near the popliteal needs at least a high-resolution CTA or an angiogram, even with a palpable pulse. The reason why is because the kinetic energy involved is known to create, sometimes, popliteal intimal flaps, which may later cause occlusion or emboli. Uh, when it comes to IVC injuries, remember, too, uh, you can repair the back wall of the IVC via a venotomy in the anterior wall. Typically, a bullet has done this. It's taken both the anterior and posterior wall. You may need to open the front wall more to repair an injury to the back wall and always suspect an injury to the back wall. Classic control of the IVC, proximal and distal to the injury, is with sponge sticks rather than clamps, especially because it's often hard for them to find clamps fast enough, even if you have a vascular tray. Remember, uh, repairing the IVC, if you repair it, you need to have a patent lumen greater than or equal to 50%. If not, use a patch, saphenous patch, uh, etc. Next up, let's talk about orthopedic injuries. Avascular necrosis has several high-risk situations, including femoral neck fractures with hip dislocations. A femur fracture in a patient can actually result in two liters of blood loss or more per side. So when you see a femur fracture, just uh, assume they've had significant blood loss into that compartment, up to two liters. Fat emboli rate is significantly increased with two femur fractures to a surprisingly high 20%. Fat emboli from long bone fractures uh, present with petechiae, hypoxia, and confusion agitation. You can try Sudan red urine stain for fat. And signs of emboli may be visible on eye exam. Posterior knee dislocations require formal angiogram. Some newer studies say CTA is okay, but the standard answer is still arteriogram. Unless the pulse is absent, uh, distal to the injury, in which case go to the OR. In general, if there's a pulse absent, distal to an orthopedic injury, reduce the fracture first if at all possible, and if it doesn't return, go to the OR. If it's present but weak, perform a CTA. 
important fractures and associated injuries, proximal humeral fracture, axillary nerve injury, shoulder dislocation, anterior and posterior, axillary nerve, distal humerus fracture, brachial artery, elbow dislocation, brachial artery, distal radial fracture, median nerve, anterior hip dislocation, femoral artery, posterior hip dislocation, sciatic nerve, distal femoral femur fracture, popliteal artery, posterior knee dislocation, popliteal artery, fibular neck fracture, perineal nerve. Next up, renal injuries. Now remember, the left renal vein may be ligated near the IVC because it has the gonadal and adrenal collaterals. The right renal vein may not, and that's obviously it lacks those collaterals. Vein artery and pelvis, renal pelvis, reminds you of the structures at the renal hilum from anterior to posterior. So VAP, vein artery pelvis, anterior to posterior. Hematuria in the trauma bay is a classic sign of renal injury, but it can be injury anywhere along the GU tract, like bladder, etc. So you can also see hematuria with that. Remember, greater than 90% of renal injuries are treated without surgical intervention. No surgical intervention. Urine extravasation does not guarantee surgical interventions necessary. But after acute injury phase, urine extravasation that does not resolve and major collection uh, system injury, those are indications for intervention at that point. Intraoperatively, it can uh, drain the area, especially if there's any question of collecting system injury. Remember, IV methylene blue may be used to check for collecting system leak while in the OR. During X-Lab for blunt trauma, hematoma at the kidney should not be opened unless pre-op imaging, if you're able to do it, shows severe urine extravasation or non-function of a kidney. But in general, non-expanding hematoma at the kidney for blunt trauma is not explored. But during an X-Lab for penetrating trauma, hematoma at the kidney is opened unless pre-op imaging demonstrates no significant urine extravasation and kidney function is okay. But again, X-LAP for penetrating trauma, open hematomas at the kidney. Blunt trauma, don't open hematomas at the kidney unless it's expanding substantially uh, or you have one of those other hints. Flank trauma in the stable patient uh, with imaging that demonstrates no kidney function, in general, go to angiography with those. Okay, now let's get to bladder injury. These you should suspect when a pelvic fracture is present because more than 90% of bladder injuries are associated with pelvic fractures. Hematuria, like we said above, that's another clue. Blood of the penile meatus may be urethral injury or bladder injury or a injury somewhere along the GU tract. A cystogram makes a diagnosis of bladder injury. If they're intraperitoneal, repair with resorbable suture at the mucosa layer, like PDS or Vicryl, and then two more layers if possible. Sometimes you can only get two layers. The classic is a three-layer repair, and remember to look for the ureteral orifices and don't close over them with the repair. Leave a Foley in place after the repair and intraperitoneal rupture is more common in kids. If there's an extraperitoneal injury, place Foley catheter, leave it in place for one to two weeks. When it comes to ureter injury, uh, things are fairly straightforward and this comes up a lot, not just in trauma, but in uh, general surgical cases and general surgical questions. First, leave drains if you're concerned about an injured ureter or after repairing ureters. Then there are options, uh, depending on where the injury is and how big it is. A large segment of ureter missing like two centimeters, uh, uh, 
there are there are ones there's one set of repair options there's a small segment missing there's another set so let's deal with large segment of the ureter missing about two centimeters or more if it's the distal third you can mobilize the ureter and reimplant it in the bladder and yes you can get that kind of length with mobilizing the ureter you may need a bladder hitch or a psoas hitch to bring the bladder up to the ureter a bit for anastomosis and you can put a, a stent in as part of this repair if it's not the distal third uh, you can tie off both ends of the ureter and place a perk nephrostomy then later on you can reconstruct with trans ureterostomy which uses the contralateral ureter or an ileal imposition uh, <laughs> ileal interposition it is it's imposing the ileum on that area or an ileal interposition so the idea here is if it's distal third, mobilize the ureter, may need a psoas hitch, bring the bladder up to it, uh, repair, likely use a stent. Not distal third, tie off both ends of the ureter in a way that you'll be able to find them later and uh, have a perk nef place, perk nephrostomy. Later on when the patient's doing better, the area can be reconstructed either with a ureteral ureterostomy or an ileal interposition. Now if it's a small segment missing and it's the distal third injured, you reimplant into the bladder, same as above. May need a psoas hitch. There are other uh, ways to bring the bladder up to the ureter, like a boire flap, where you make a flap of bladder as sort of a, a tubular into a sort of tubular structure, reimplant the ureter in that. There's several options for how to gain length on the bladder, but the bottom line is uh, ureter repairs are contingent on how much ureter is missing and uh, where the, that portion is. So, small segment, the distal third is injured reimplant it into the bladder. If it's not the distal third, mobilize the ends and perform an anastomosis over a stent. Typically PDS is used. Uh, the ends of the ureter are beveled, if at all possible, to avoid a stricture. And again, uh, repair over a stent if it's just a small segment of ureter and it's not the distal third. An IVP with one shot does not adequately evaluate the ureters for injury. And remember, methylene blue or indigo carmine uh, checks you for leaks. Next, let's talk about urethral trauma and miscellaneous GU facts. First, these injuries are much more common in males given the urethral length. Pelvic fractures, particularly open book fractures, patients with blood thymiatus, prostate gland not palpable or free floating, hematuria, these are all signs of possible urethral injury. Don't place a Foley if injury is suspected. Perform a retrograde urethrogram or a rug. Portion of the urethra most at risk for injury is the membranous portion of the urethra. And partial tears that are small can be treated with a catheter bridging the repair and a delayed definitive repair months later. A suprapubic cystostomy is performed if there's a significant tear. And definitive repair, again, is performed months later owing to the high rate of stricture and possible impotence uh, with uh, immediate or early repair. Penile fracture from sex or other trauma, you need to repair Buck's fascia and the tunica. If there's testicular trauma, do ultrasound to check flow and tunica albuginia. Repair the tunica if needed. Next up, it's peds trauma. Here are the important factoids, some of the important factoids for the absite about pediatric trauma. Remember, less than one year of age has uh, typical vital signs that are different from those of an adult, as do many pediatric patients. So less than one year, typically vitals are heart rate over 160, systolic blood pressure over 80, respiratory rate less than 40. One to five years, typical vitals, 
Heart rate's down a little bit, 140. Systolic blood pressure greater than 90, up a little bit. Respiratory rate less than 30. Greater than 10 years old, typical vitals, heart rate over 120. Systolic blood pressure over 100. Respiratory rate less than 20. Remember, pediatric patients will compensate for blood loss very effectively and for a long time until they just suddenly can't anymore. And the old line is that they, quote, fall off a cliff, unquote, late, when they finally can't compensate anymore. So maintain a high index of suspicion for shock and blood loss. Pediatric patients have an increased risk of both head injury and hypothermia. Pregnant patients are another important subpopulation for trauma. Now about 33% of the total intravascular volume may be lost by pregnant patients prior to them demonstrating physical signs. Resuscitation and treatment is primarily directed toward the mother first. Uh, this is the, quote, mother first, unquote, or, quote, save the mother at all costs, unquote, idea. Now, to help estimate how far along a pregnancy is, remember that the fundus of the uterus is at the umbilicus at 20 weeks. So 20 weeks gestation is approximately 20 centimeters height at the umbilicus. In the first trimester, avoid CT if possible. Remember, ultrasound and MRI may be useful for imaging the area, too. Vaginal discharge, including blood or amnion, is concerning. And a C-section during trauma laparotomy is performed if there's severe intrauterine trauma, there's severe injuries or shock in the mother, and the pregnancy is near term, like greater than 34 weeks. If continued pregnancy is a threat to the mother, owing to DIC, or bleeding. If you're unable to expose an injured vessel in the pelvis, owing to the presence of the uterus, C-section during trauma laparotomy is an option. Here are some miscellaneous facts about pulmonary function. And these often come up in trauma and ICU patients uh, and, and the absite. Remember, pulmonary compliance is the change in volume for a given change in pressure. And in general, you want a good uh, high compliance in general. Compliance is decreased in ARDS in patients with pulmonary edema. It takes greater pressure to get the same volumes. Aging reduces FEV1 and FVC. Initial treatment for air embolus is place patient in Trendelenburg with the left side down. So head down, left side down. Then you can attempt air aspiration via a central line that's placed into the depth of the right atrium. You can try to aspirate the air. PEEP increases functional residual capacity, FRC, and increased compliance. It also keeps alveoli open, and pneumothorax is unusual with PEEP unless it's very high. Remember, FRC, that functional residual capacity, is the volume in the lungs after normal exhalation. Inspiratory capacity is air breathed in from the FRC. So when you breathe in, at, when you're at FRC and you breathe in, that's as much as you can, inspiratory capacity. Vital capacity is the greatest volume of air that can be exhaled. Just a couple other miscellaneous trauma facts, and then we're all, all done with the trauma absite review. Endothelial-derived relaxing factor is also nitrous oxide, and that's produced from arginine in endothelial cells. It's increased in sepsis, produces vasodilatation. Nitric oxide is released in response to serial compression devices, so SCDs. That's why SCDs placed on the upper extremities, not just the lower extremities, give some re uh, risk reduction for DVT because of endothelial cell compression and nitric oxide release uh, from there. Remember, hydrofluoric acid burns are treated with topical calcium. 
Remember, carbon monoxide elevates the oxygen saturation. Uh, the hemoxy dissociation curve is left shifted. Patient may have cherry red lips seen in the trauma bay. And 100% oxygenation administration reduces the half-life of carbon dioxide from one hour, uh, from five hours to about one hour. So uh, oxygen offloading is the problem. The SAT really is as high as the oxygen saturation on the machine, although some books will say it's falsely elevated. It's not. That is the patient's oxygen saturation. However, oxygen does not leave the red blood cell and offload. That's the problem. Remember, sylvidine carries a neutropenia risk. It's active against candida, especially active against candida. And there's, uh, it's, it's good against candida, but eschar penetration is poor. Sulfamylon, that's painful. Acidosis is due to carbonic anhydrase uh, inhibition. Uh, less bicarb uh, becomes water and carbon dioxide, so the patient's therefore acidotic. Silver nitrate, you can see hyponatremia and hypochloremia due to sodium chloride loss. Remember, electrical burns can give rhabdo, compartment syndrome, cataracts, hollow viscous perforations, solid organ injuries, and immediate death uh, that can result from VFib. The most common infection in burn patients is pneumonia, and burn patients have an initial decrease in cardiac output, but then an increase later. They're called hyperdynamic. Remember last, Margolin's ulcer is squamous cell cancer that develops in a chronic wound. So there you are. Those are the headlines in the trauma and acute care surgery portion for the absites. Here, actually, the trauma portion in particular. Sure do hope you find it useful. Take a look at absitesmackdown.com for more information and upcoming absite reviews. And as my colleagues say from uh, Team Smackdown and uh, uh, Project uh, Smackdown, hashtag absite Smackdown and best of luck. Thanks for listening to the Absite Smackdown podcast. Visit us at absitesmackdown.com for more great absite facts.